Let's pray together. Oh, God, you are an awesome God. Wow. So generous. So holy. So you. A few more minutes left with you in your house. Speak, Lord. Your children listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, let's do retro today. You okay with retro right now? I want to read an old-fashioned story. I mean, it just feels old-fashioned. It is old-fashioned. It's old. This story's from the outback of Australia. And, the, and uh, as I read it, you'll, you'll, you'll pick up on it. It, it, it just has that ancient feel to it. But hang on, because this story happens to touch an area of one of my own weaknesses. It may bless you as well, so without any further ado, let me read to you Mr. Bingle's Old Coat. You ready? Splendid, said Mrs. Bingle, pulling the collar up of Farmer Bingle's new coat, pressing down the flaps. Real silk velvet collar, yes, and such a piece of cloth, $45 for the whole thing. $45 back in that day. It is, it is the equivalent, there's a note scribbled here, 1,000 U.S., 1,000 U.S., so $45 is nothing to sneeze at. Whoo, $45, echoed Sam and Jim admiringly. Yep, 17 for the tailoring and trimmings and 28 for the cloth. It'll do me till I'm gray. <laughs> what are you going to do with the old one, Pa? Well, it's a first-rate coat, I'll admit, but I was thinking... Some have given it to Parson Graves, their pastor. You see, it'll, it'll go on my account for the year, and I won't have to pay as much on his salary. So it was agreed. Yes, it was that Parson Graves should have the old overcoat. Accordingly, on the next outing, when the farmer with his wife was about to drive into the country town, he asked at the last moment, now where's that coat? Oh, bless me, cried Mrs. Bingle. I've been so busy cleaning and making supper. If I didn't clear, forget about it. Sally, Sally, she ran into the house calling the young lady who helped in the kitchen. Run up to the spare bedroom and take the overcoat that hangs there and some of the paper, papers that lays on the shelf and wrap it up well for me and bring it, please. Soon Sally brought it and the huge bundle lay in Mrs. Bingle's lap as she rode. Oh, she said as she stroked the package, it's a good coat, half regretfully smoothing a little corner. Hate to see it go. Oh, agreed the farmer. But never you mind, woman, it's more blessed to give than to receive, you know. The Bingle household awoke the next morning with the impression that something of an event was impending in the family, which impression became with full wakefulness defined into the remembrance that the new overcoat was to be worn for the first time on that day. Yo, Jim, run upstairs, please. Father tried to not excited, not act excited. Run upstairs and get my overcoat, will you? Jim bounded up the stairs but delayed until his mother had put the last touches on the bow to her bonnet strings. I can't find it, a voice from upstairs. Well, where are you looking? In the closet of your room. It's in the closet of the spare room, called his father. Another long delay. And then Jim came downstairs without it. I tell you, it's on one of them pegs in our closet, said Mrs. Bingle. I'll go myself. It's dark and he can't see. But it's there, for I put it there myself. No, said Mr. Bingle, calling after. It's in the spare chamber closet. I put it there. 
She was heard briskly moving from one room to another, then back, then back, then back, and then down the stairs where she stood before them in silence on her face, blank consternation, and on her arm, the old overcoat. (sighs) When did you hang it there? Well, I don't know. The day after it came, I guess. The old one always hung there, so I took it down and hung the new one there. Mrs. Bingle sank, sank into a chair. It's gone. Gone to Parson Graves, the boy stared, open-mouthed, unable at first to fully take in the calamity. But you can get it again, at length, Jim said, hopefully. Of course you can, Dad. Sam said, you can just tell Parson Graves it was all a mistake, and it was the old coat you meant for him, and of course he'll change it around. (laughs) His father shook his head ruefully. No, that will not do. It's done. It can't be undone, he said with a groan. Don't one of you never let, let on about its being a mistake. The family in the old coat, I love this line, the family in the old coat were late to church. <laughs> Thus missing the sight of the entrance of the new coat, but it lay over the arm now of the little sofa behind the pulpit. And Farmer Bingo could never recall a word of that service through which he sat trying to bring himself into some friendly recognition of the fact he had presented his minister with a $45, $1,000 overcoat, which he could not hope to have count at anything near its full value on his yearly assessment for the pastor's salary. But don't he look fine, though, interjected Sam as Mr. Graves came down the aisle. And don't Mrs. Graves look happy, said Jim. Enough to make any woman happy to hang on to a piece of cloth like that, said Mrs. Bingle. Mr. Bingle was unhitching his horses as Mr. Graves came out the church door. And so Mr. Bingle did not at first raise his eyes. As he listened to the remarks passing by, a voice said, Bless me, what a fine-looking fellow our parson is anyhow. Where on earth did he get that coat? That coat. Another voice spoke up. Must have had a fortune left him. Mr. Bingle could not help feeling that the coat had been well bestowed. As his wearer came to meet him with outstretched hands and a few quiet, though very earnest words of acknowledgement of his gift, The coat had fitted the farmer well, but there was something more than the mere filling of a good cloth and the minister's dignified bearing and in the scholarly face which appeared above it, something which stirred up feeling in many members of the congregation that this servant of the Lord had not hitherto been clothed in a fashion worthy of his high office. Well, that's a shabby old hat to wear, said one of the village storekeepers. I'll see about that before another Sabbath comes around. As Mr. Bingo felt the grasp of his pastor's hand, he began almost to be glad that he had given the coat. And then, as the fact of his having given it was whispered about, he began to feel ashamed of receiving so much credit for an act which he never would have thought of performing. For an honest and really warm nature lay under the crust of parsimonious selfishness which had hardened over his heart as it has, alas, over so many which might overflow in deeds of kindness to bless those who have given not grudgingly but their whole lives to the master's service. (sighs) I feel like a liar. Yes, I do, said Mr. Bingle to his wife with an energy that startled her as they rode home. To have have that man shaking me by the hand and talking about my generosity and his wife's eyes beaming up at me and me not able to ride out and tell them I'm a grudging, tight-fisted old. I tell you what, he gave the horse's rein such a vigorous yank that Jim and Sam on the back backless seat of the bobsleigh nearly went over backwards into the snow. I've got to get, I've, I've got to get even with myself somehow, but I don't 
just know how yet. Suddenly, everybody starts showing up. Everybody starts showing up at the parsonage. Everybody's bringing gifts to the graves. And by the way, not cheap goods and cast offs. No, no, no. In the generous supply of winter comforts now coming to the parsonage, each giver made sure it should be in keeping with that fine new overcoat. <laughs> Wives and the mothers had seen to it that Mrs. Graves and the children should look fit to walk beside that tailor-made piece of cloth. Mr. Bingle had smiled with a light in his own eyes, which came up from somewhere under the broken crust when he saw a set of furs his wife brought out and carried over to Mrs. Graves that night. But in the early gray of the winter morning, he, with Sam's help, shh, quietly unloaded in the backyard of the parsonage a tub of butter, potatoes, and six barrels of his best apples packed for market. A goodly amount if I carted it a half a mile farther, he said to his wife with a face which shone as he sat down to breakfast. And not a soul heard us, said Sam, rubbing his hands in great glee. Oh, I wish I could have seen them when they found out. Now I'm even, said the farmer. And it was the best day's work I ever did when I gave away that coat by mistake. The end. Isn't that a great story? You got to admit, you got to admit, come on, that it touches us right where it hurts. Selfishness. Selfishness. Are you a selfish person? Am I? I don't say anything. Come on, selfishness. The truth is that just like Mr. Bingle, we've all been born with selfishness from the parson to the farmer to you to me. But an accidental gift he never would have given turned out to be the surgical strike to break through the crusty shell of selfishness. Selfishness. Where do we get it from anyway? We get it from Mr. Bingles? No, we didn't get it from Mr. Bingles. You know where we got it from? From a fallen, brilliant, demented angel who once went by the name Lucifer, now goes by the name Satan, that old serpent called the devil that deceives the whole world. That's where we got it from. Fair and square, born with it. Because selfishness is just a code word for self-worship. And we all self-worship. Just like Lucifer. So that's one story. But there's another one, and it's the other one that matters right now, because embedded in this story is the anti-venom to the serpent's poison, selfishness. Open your Bible now to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Come on. This is the second story. Luke chapter 19. Hey, wait a minute. Dwight, weren't we just at uh, Luke 19 last week? Yep, you got it. In fact, we're going right after last week's story ends. You remember the story about the ten servants, one mina each? Yeah, we all remember that one. Boy, that was a punchy one. Won't come back to that for a while. The very next words, let's, let's go to them right now. Luke chapter 19, drop down to verse 28. Here it comes. And after Jesus had said this, said what? Told the parable about the ten servants, each receiving one mina. Oh, if you missed that one, go online. It's sitting there for you. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Goodbye, Jericho. Hello, Jerusalem going up to Jerusalem so that he could become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, including my selfishness and your selfishness. 
That's where he's headed. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany, house of, house of figs and house of the poor, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, hey, listen, guys, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you just say, the Lord needs it. Awkward. I mean, please, can you imagine being given those instructions? You're sitting out here in the little village, little village park. Yes, you are with that sweet little honey of yours, that girlfriend of yours, brand new Toyota that you're driving. You're so excited about it. You're sitting in the park. You don't notice that I walk by the park. I see the keys. Bad mistake of your port. I see the, I see the keys in the ignition. I jump in the car. I crank that engine over. You come racing. Whoa, whoa. What are you doing? Well, I just want to ride this car that's never been ridden in before. You have a problem with that? Problem? Yeah, you know how it would be. Can you imagine doing it? <laughs> Can you imagine? If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say the Lord needs it. Oh, but don't forget, the disciples are headed to Jerusalem because they, they believe Jesus is now going to be crowned king. And when you're a king, you can requisition anything you wish. Thank you. So they're not worried about it. Guess what? It happens just as Jesus said it would. Anybody surprised? Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as Jesus had told them. As they were untying the coat, his owners asked, yo, why are you untying that coat? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And guess what? They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the coat and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks along the road and they cut off palm branches. And thus was born the name Palm Sunday. You see, that is Palm Sunday. The story is happening on Palm Sunday. On Good Friday, it's all over. And on Easter Sunday, a new universe has begun. Wow. For the next few moments... Brood with me over that four-line word, the Lord needs it. Come to think of it, that's been the story of Jesus' life from the get-go. He has always been dependent on others to meet his needs. I need a crib. And they scour through that stinky stable to find a crude box of cow feed into which to bed the newborn king. I need some food. And a boy steps forward with five loaves and two fishes and ends up 15,000 people getting fed. Wow, I need a drink. So the Samaritan woman lowers her jar into that dark recess of that deep well to quench his thirst. And guess what? It turns out it's her thirst that gets slaked. Wow, I need to sleep. So Peter pushes towards him the coxswain's pillow at the back of the fishing skiff so the dead, tired master can sleep through the storm. I need a room. So Martha and Mary and Lazarus offer a room of their own for the son of man who has no place to lay down his head. I need a coin. Somebody in the crowd flips him a denarius so that he can finish his illustration. I need a donkey. So a stranger says, you may, you can have mine. I need a prayer partner. So all 11 of his disciples sleep while he prays into his last night on earth. I need a defender. But alas, no one speaks up in his defense at that sham of a trial. I need a crown. So some heartless soldiers plait a crown of thorns and shove it into his tender brow. I need a throne. 
So some part-time carpenters hammer together two pieces of wood, a perch for the king of Jews to be nailed and to hang before the universe. I need a drink again. So a compassionate soldier soaks a sponge in sour vinegar and raises it on the tip of his spear to moisten the lips of the dying Savior. I need a grave. So a secret admirer steps forward and says, I'll bury him in mine. I need a witness. And at last, 11 men with courage born afresh of Calvary step forward and lead an entire generation to step up and say, sign me up. And they did. Well, like I'm telling you, Jesus has always been dependent on others to meet the needs he has. And it makes me wonder, what's he need from you? What's he needing from you? Need a hint? There are three gimme's. Three give-me's that Jesus offers. Three strategic and surgical strikes to break the deadly grip of self-worship in my mind and heart and in yours as well. Three give-me's. I'm going to run these three by you right now. Give me number one. The Lord needs it. That's why he has give me number one. Give me number one. Give me your heart. The wisest man who ever lived scribbled in his book, Proverbs chapter 23, verse 26, my child, give me your heart. The French have a proverb. I like it. He gives nothing who does not give himself. He gives nothing. You have to look at that for a while. He gives nothing who does not give himself. That's the first gift God asks for. Whether you're 14, 44, 84, it doesn't matter to God. He says, listen, numero uno. Give me your heart. I want your heart. I want yourself. That's what self-ish is about, holding on to self. I want your heart. Why? No wonder we have these red-letter words. In the Apocalypse, the Bible's last book, Jesus himself speaking, here I am. He's talking to you. He's talking to me right now. Boy, girl, I stand at the door of your heart, and I am knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you. If you've never given your heart to Jesus before, you've never said, Lord, come into my life. He's standing there right now. I'm promising you, he is knocking right now. And he's saying, yo, would you be willing to let me in? Three give me's. Give me number one. Give me your heart. I had a young man in my office just a few days ago. He's lived a tough life, but hallelujah, God's turning it around. And he was sharing some of the stories of his recovery. And I reminded him, look at, look at, look at, boy, first things first. You have to give him your heart first. Don't make big plans for your life until you've given him your heart. Well, I'm graduating with this degree, and then I'm going to do this, and I'm going to conquer the world. No, you're not. You give him your heart first. Then you move out for those dreams. Jesus, I hear you knocking at my door. I open the door of my life to you, myself to you. The serpent has injected his venom deep into my very soul, but Jesus, you come in and believe me, antidote, antidote that venom, antivenom that poison away. 
He says, I'll do it. Give me your heart. You have to give me something. We have to break the back of the serpent in your life. Give it to me. Three gimme's. The Lord has need of it. That's why. The Lord needs it. Give me number two. Give me your time. Oh, boy, God is really, I got to tell you this. He is really huge on time. Watch this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Mercy. William Temple, the, 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 the great Archbishop of Canterbury back in the 20th century, William Temple never forgot the lesson his father taught him when he was a boy. The father kept telling William, 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 always complaining about no time. William, you have all the time there is. There's no more. You have it. The truth is, we have just as much time as this face I'm going to show you right now, right here. You're going to see it on the big screen. Held in my hand. We have all the time in the world, as much time as this young man, 11 years old, sitting on the prestigious cover of Time magazine. His name is Orion Jean. Did I say he's 11? Did I tell you that he is honored as the kid of the year? Did I mention that? Did I, did I tell you yet that he is an 11-year-old Seventh-day Adventist and member of the Dallas Temple Church in Texas? Did I tell you? Did I tell you that? I wanted to tell you right off the bat, so when you hear his list of credentials, you're going to say, whoa, and he's only 11. Uh, at the age of nine, I will tell you this, he gave a speech. They have a na national speech contest for kindness, and he gave a speech on kindness. And what's the line in that speech? He wrote this line and spoke it. Kindness is a virtue we can all possess if we are willing to. And then, guess what? He forms an organization at the age of nine called The Race to Kindness. He, he won $500 for doing such a great speech. And he took his $500 and he started investing it. He invested it in 600 toys for children in the Children's Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. He handed the toys away. And then he, started, he forms a national organization called, as I told you, Race to Kindness. And now you know what they're doing? They're distributing food and books. 100,000 meals have been distributed because this nine-year-old boy said, I can do something for Jesus. 500,000 books have been given away to students who don't have access to literature because of the cost a half a million books because this boy said, I can do something for Jesus if I use my time for him. Now, don't you dare come up to me after this service and say, you know, Pastor, I really would like to volunteer my services in this church, but I just don't have the time. You tell that to Orion Jean, will you? He was sitting on ABC television. They're interviewing him. And they're asking him, why you do what you do? And he, he told them, you know, I, I use the things that I saw on the news every day people losing their jobs and their homes and access to food and books and clothing, things we sometimes take for granted. And with a little bit of kindness, we can hopefully give back those things. And I decided I could help give back those things. And I'm so proud of this kid. Of course, I'm really proud of him because he's a Seventh-day Adventist young man. Gift number two, give me your time. Orion did. He's interviewed by Angelina Jolie. Now, that would be an interview. And it's here in Time magazine. 
Yeah. A little embarrassed to talk about not having enough time. Give me your time, Jesus invites you. What's the deal with, what's the deal with volunteering? It's not just about killing time. It is a strategic giving that antidotes the venom of self-worship. When you give time, you're crushing, you're crushing that serpent's venom. You're crushing it. When you give yourself, when you give your time, the Lord needs it. He doesn't need it because he doesn't have enough time. He needs it because you have too much time. He says, give it to me. Give it to me. All right, there are three of these. What's the point of all these gimmies? <laughs> I'll tell you. The point is, it is the act of giving. That's what I'm trying to share with you. It is the act of giving that breaks the crust of selfishness and antidotes the venom of self-worship. It just kind of bleeds it out of you when you give. Oh, but the three is one more. Okay, so number three, give me your means. Well, what do you mean by means, Dwight? Well, I put give me your means because I didn't want to be really in your face and say what God is really saying here, and that's give me your money. That's what he's saying. Give me your money. That's the hardest give that there is. You can give your time till you're blue in the face, but it's the money we own. We hang, we, we hang on to till the bitter end. Give me your money. Whew. Are you serious? As serious as they say, as serious as a heart attack. It's the number one, the numero uno subject that Jesus deals with in his entire four gospels lifetime. He talks more about money than any other subject. He must know. That that give me there breaks, antidotes the venom of self-worship. Ed Gunger in his book, I love the title of his book, Religiously Transmitted Diseases. Huh? Huh? Religiously Transmitted Diseases? Are you serious? Ed Gunger in his book, Religiously Transmitted Diseases, he got it right here. Giving touches a nerve in us that nothing else does. We look a lot like God when we do it. Why? For God so loved the world that he what? 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 He gave. We look like God. We look a lot like God when we do it. When you give, you defy the fear that you won't have enough. You were thinking when those kids went by, no, I'm not going to give that 20. I'll give a one. Because if I give the 20, what do I have? That's why we don't give. We fear that we won't have enough. Come on, be honest. <laughs> Yep, you insult greed when you give, the impulse to acquire or possess more than one needs or deserves. If you really believe that God owns it all and that he is your source and provider, giving will be a simple matter because it's his anyway. Huh? Keep reading. The arena of giving is the only place where exactly what's going on in your heart is revealed. Hit the pause button there, Dwight. I will. If you're honest with me, And you tell me what you give. You tell me what you give. I will immediately, by what you tell me, learn about your spirituality. Somebody talked about the widow's mite. Is that what you talked about? That beautiful baby named Luke? Why was the widow's... Why was the widow commended by Jesus? She gave nothing. The others were pouring in these bags of money and feeling so good because everybody said, what a giver. Why was she commended by Jesus? 
because you are commended not by the amount you give, but by the amount you keep. And the guys dumping in the big gold were keeping a lot. So it's not the amount. Don't, don't feel bad. It's what you have left over. That's what we give out of. Yeah. According to Jesus, giving keeps your heart in motion toward God and away from material things. Your heart will follow the direction of your giving. For where your treasure is, what did Jesus say? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Yeah. And yet, do you know that there's some people in the church even, if you ask them and say, come on, I want you to be honest with me, they're not giving anything at all. Maybe a dollar when the kid goes by. Well, she's such a cute little girl. I'll give her a dollar. No giving to the God. No giving to the God who gives you every beat of your heart. No. No giving to the Lord who gives you every breath of your lungs. No. No giving at all. No. You've got to be kidding me. I don't look at the books. God does. Your books. You know what? You and I cannot afford not to give if eternity is the end game. Hey, listen, if, you're not, if, if eternity is not a big deal for you, you want to grab for all the gusto you can, be my guest. Spend it all now. You don't have to save a penny, boy. Just let it go. If, but if eternity is where you wish to spend the rest of eternity in, then giving is what breaks the anti anti-worship that Lucifer calls rightfully the I-worship, self-worship. Wow. Let's listen to Jesus when, before he became Jesus. He was just Christ when he spoke these words, the pre-incarnate Christ, Malachi 3. These might be familiar to you. Will a mere mortal rob, rob God, Christ asks, yet you rob me? How? Come on, Jesus. We don't rob you. How are we robbing you? He answers, in tithes and offerings. No, you got to be kidding me. No, I'm not kidding me. Kidding you. Verse 10, so bring the whole tithe. That's code language, by the way. The word tithe is a code word in the New Testament, also in the Old Testament. 10% of your gain, 10% of your gain. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Can you believe it? He is going to reward your crushing the venom of the serpent in your life. He will reward you for doing that. You can't believe it. What did Jesus just say in our scripture reading a moment ago? Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. I could line them up on this platform right here. Men, women, children, teens, college students, graduate students, I could line them up right here. And they would give their testimonies to you. I promise you. And you know what their testimonies would be about? How when they faithfully returned God's tithe, because it's his tithe, not ours. How they, when they faithfully returned their little 10% and cheerfully, mind you, cheerfully gave the offerings that they were able to give. How? 
God has proven to be their CFO. What does CFO stand for? What's the C stand for? Chief. What's the F stand for? Financial. What's the O? The one who makes the decisions. The CFO. They said, it's no big deal to me. I asked God one day, you become my CFO and I'll give you my dreams. I'll give you my career. I'll give you my children. I'll give you my job or no job. I'll give it all to you and you be my CFO. Wow. You manage my finances. You know we have more month than money many times. But God, I'm counting on you. I'm counting on you to take, take that 90% or maybe only 80% left over now. I'm counting on you to take the, what would have been the 100% and stretch that 100% bigger than it could ever have been had I kept the 100% to myself. I'm counting on you because you are the omnipotent creator of this universe. And if you can open the floodgates of heaven, you can take care of me. I'm counting on you. I'm counting on you. God doesn't need our money. Our quarters, our dollar bills, our $500 checks. This isn't about God needing our money. This is about the venom inside of us needing to be bled out of us. And giving is the anti-venom that saves us. Not long after the story of Mr. Bingle's old coat, these words are written. Put them on the screen for you. About the same time in Australia, these words were written, let us surrender ourselves a living sacrifice and give our all. No, come on. No, all to Jesus. It's his. We're we're his purchased possession. Those who are recipients of his grace, who contemplate the cross of Calvary, will not question concerning the proportion. How much is this? Do you have a tithe light in this church? You know, not not 10%, but how about 9%? No, we don't have tithe light. Don't, Don't contemplate Concern over the proportion to be given. No, when we contemplate the cross of Calvary, we'll not question concerning the proportion to be given, but we'll feel that the richest offering is all too meager, all disproportionate, disproportionate to the great gift of the only begotten Son of the infinite God. Through self-denial, the poorest will find ways of obtaining something to give back to God. There it is. That's it. Four words. The Lord needs it. And for the venom that's still in me and the venom that still circulates in you, giving will break the serpent's back. Oh, God. It's all yours. We get it. You're not twisting our arms. Not like our parents used to do. Tell tell them you love them. Tell your little brother you love them. You're not here to force us to say anything. Not that we love you. Not that we love our neighbor. But you make these three give me invitations to break Lucifer's back in my life. Give me your heart. Give me your time. Please. Give me your means. The little that we have, Father, please understand, it will be our joy 
to honor you as the CFO of our lives. Do whatever it takes. Keep us solvent and open up those floodgates. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to sing a chorus with you. Before we do, I want you to just check out this uh, Connect card. If you'll just text the words, last one of this series, sign up six to 269-281-2345. Just sign up six. Here, here are three next steps. The Lord needs it, so I want to give my heart to Jesus. Please contact me. If you've not given your heart to Jesus, you're sitting up in the balcony, you're sitting here in the front of the church, it doesn't matter to me, you're watching online somewhere on the planet, you want to give your heart to Jesus, if you will put, you'll put a check mark there, we'll be in touch with you electronically. Let's talk about giving your heart to the one who gave his life for you. Uh, box number two. The Lord needs it, so I want to give my time to Jesus. Please have the Volunteer Engagement Committee contact me with new opportunities to serve. Please. I'm willing. I'm willing to share some time. You put a check mark there, we'll be in touch. Final box. The Lord needs it, so I want to give my means to Jesus. Choosing him to be my CFO as I faithfully return his tithe and cheerfully give my offerings. Sign me up. Sign me up, Jesus. You're my CFO.